Well, hi everybody. Here we are on Thanks-Giving Eve. And um, those of you who are listening, I'm sure many of you are making stuffing, making your sweet potato casseroles, um, uh, you know, your pies, your potato casseroles of other sorts, and green bean, whatever, and... Um, and listening to us, I hope. And uh, we have a really, we have an interesting show. I put out a newsletter this time with an endless letter from me because I just wanted to herald this wonderful moment that we are in in the city of New Orleans when Prospect comes to town with its 73 artists on view at 17 locations from all over the world and 120 satellite locations all over the city, and those are manned by our local arts folks. And so, you know, I don't know the number yet. We're going to count and find out, but I'm speculating that there's the work of something around 100, I'm sorry, a 1,000 artists on view throughout the city. So the subject of my newsletter today was forget shopping, go see art, and actually shop the art because, you know, maybe this Christmas you would buy local and buy from artists who are our creatives who work very hard. I know you think they just have an easy life. They don't. They have a very hard life, and they are driven to create and make work. And um, honor it. Go buy it. Um, pick up the uh, Prospect 4's um, insert that's available at their headquarters um, right on Julia Street. You know where that flower shop used to be right at the corner of Carondelet and Julia? That's where they're located. And see where all the locations are and go see the work. It is a treasure that is there for us to enjoy. Um, it, it's just something really special. I personally worked on four of those satellite sites. One in St. Bernard, Crevasse 22 River House that has a really interesting mix of um, both cutting edge and, and really traditional regional work, including everything from duck carvings to installations and, you know, shrimp bows painted black to tell a story about the environment. And so on. I, I, it's a beautiful, beautiful show. It's only a half an hour down river. I'm urging you to go see it. And we're going to have a guest on a little later in the show who's going to talk about her part in it, which was kind of the fun part. She painted, uh, with her friends these decoys that we put out on the water in this little pond that happens to be adjacent to the sculpture park and to the museum. Um, the second show we have is up in uh, Central City on O.C. Haley Boulevard, 1307. Uh, it's the Myrtle Banks building, that school building that has the public market on the ground floor and the gallery on the third floor. And there we have the work of Kim Rice. And Kim's work is really interesting. And all of the work that we usually show in that gallery kind of has – some kind of a social justice message or it's about the history of the civil rights movement or about Central City. It kind of speaks to the history of that neighborhood. Um, and she's with us, and we're going to talk to her in just a moment. And then Justin McKee, um, who's a, 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 a longtime associate of Tannins and Mine, and his partner have put together a wonderful book 
It's called The Raffage. I call it a book. I'm, I think it's, it's a publication, basically. And um, he and Caitlin Davis have, have really done something lovely. And, uh, and I think I call it a, a stocking stuffer. It's kind of an unusual stocking stuffer. It's not exactly peppermint candies or, um, I don't know, floating creatures or decoys or whatever. But um, it's a beautiful little collection of work, and we're going to visit with them in a minute, too. So um, without further ado, let me introduce our first guest, who is Kim Rice. Kim has spent... Um, some time in here, here in New Orleans, and uh, right now she is um, learning about her newest digs, which are in Baltimore, another port city, and she's happy to be in a port city. And they have a lot of crab up there too, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go any place in America, that maybe will have some of the kinds of shellfish we have. I don't know about shrimp. Do they have shrimp? Um, I think they have just about everything. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure they don't have as much as we have. But um, anyway, they, they, they do have a big Chesapeake Bay. It's not far, right? Sure. And so, um, yeah, it's an it's a interesting place to live. And, and the, the uh, mix, the, the demographic mix is not unrelated. It's, there's a lot of um, African American. There's a lot of um, Italian, uh, uh, Irish, German. Um, not I'm so not, much. I'm not for sure on that. Yeah. We have, we have a surprising German population. A lot of people don't realize that we did have, um, an immigration and emigration into the city some, uh, time ago that brought, um, a lot of German people into the country and into the city. Kim's show really highlights the challenges of a practice called redlining. And redlining is a, a practice that basically makes it harder for people to finance their homes, which has a really, really uh, negative effect on the lives of people who are not able to secure homes. Is that well? Is that uh, re- a relevant way? Of, you talk about it. <laughs> sure. Um, yes, my work has to do with um, institutional racism and um, specifically when you think about redlining. Redlining um, is probably the most concrete way that we can look at um, ways in in which institutional racism affects us every day. Um, me, particularly as a white person, um, the fact that I, I benefit by... Um, by my grandparents and great-grandparents' ability to access property. So in the 1930s, as a means to boost the middle class, the white middle middle class um, specifically, the federal government um, outlined neighborhoods throughout the United States. So they took all the major cities. There's probably about 500 of these maps out there. And um, what they did is they created four different colors, blue, green, yellow, and red. Um, blue was considered best, uh, green um, uh, still desirable, um, and then green was undesirable, and, and I'm sorry, uh, yellow was undesirable, and, and red was hazardous, um, or definitely declining in hazardous. And so... Um, any any area that had been uh, colored yellow or red did not get access to mortgages, and that was specifically designed by the federal government and then um, went ahead and established by all the other banks and mortgage companies around. So that was legal until 1968. So the residue of this um, exists. Was to destroy neighborhoods. 
oh. where people couldn't. It destroyed the lives of people and neighborhoods. Absolutely. Because those neighborhoods basically were abandoned. Uh, well, they weren't abandoned. People lived there. Um, they they didn't have my white skin, um, and so as my family, even though that they were immigrants from Scandinavia, um, they were able to assimilate into whiteness, get access to property, and then um, through property you can um, get proper education. You can get access to food. You can get. Um, inheritance and equity and all these things that we pass down generation to generation. And so um, for me, I feel as if if, if we want to look at um, inequality in America, we need to go back to property and we need to look at um, who is benefiting from what and what policies are still in play and, and where the residue of these are. And if you think about segregation and, and why our cities are segregated in the way they are, um, it's a direct correlation to what the federal government did to, did to the country in, in the 1930s. You know, this is not going to come as any surprise uh, to most of the people in our audience because I would gainsay that a ton of people that are listening um, are familiar with that pattern. But I don't know how familiar you are with what happened after Katrina here and the state policies regarding um, helping people uh, come back or not in our city. So the pattern of how people sought restitution for the destruction of their property by the storms um, took an interesting path. And the path was that Let's say you had a house in the lower nine that was pretty heavily damaged. And this, I guess the state, I really don't know how to separate out the state from the feds in this case. I know the feds had a, I, I shouldn't say I know, but a lot of us suspect that the feds had a deliberate policy of trying to keep black people from coming back to New Orleans to affect the voting, to affect who could get elected, not just New Orleans, but in, in other parts of the state as well, to affect how many Republicans versus Democrats could get elected. So that's the um, the conspiracy theory, which is probably at least in part true. To what extent the state was complicit, I'm not sure. But here's what they did. If you wanted to sell your house to the state, you got a dollar for dollar. If you wanted to fix it up, you got Sixty cents on the dollar. So let's say your house, theoretically, on the marketplace, is worth a hundred thousand dollars. So if you sold it, the state would give you a hundred. But if you wanted to fix it up, you could only get sixty. And could you fix that house up with sixty? Many of those houses were washed away completely, or next to it. And so that policy basically kept a lot of people from coming back. And you were telling me just before we went on the air your story of having left the city after Katrina, wanting to come back and not being able to because the prices of property had gone up, in, in, in part in, uh, as a result of the, the diminution of housing. And so you couldn't afford to come back. Tell me your story. You went to Oklahoma, right? Sure. Um, but I, I, I do have a footnote to that. So um, my... My partner, now husband at the time, um, he, he and I um, did not have any money at the time of Katrina. So that would be um, the, Sunday, the Sunday before the levees broke. Um, 
and we didn't have a way to get out. So when people talk about, oh, why didn't people just get out? At that time, we didn't have a way to get out. But our parents, both of our parents were middle class. So... um and and that I'm going to drive back to the the ability to access property. Um, so because both of our parents were middle class, we were able to access a vehicle um, that had had gas in it from his parents, along with cash that they had hidden in the house because we didn't have any cash or or gas in our car. Um, and so we were able to get those resources from them and then turn around um, and get resources in the state of Oklahoma from my parents. So um, I feel like in that particular situation with myself, even though I wasn't able to um, move back into the city because prices had tripled by that point, um, we had the resources to get out before the levees broke. And I believe that that is due to the fact that my uh, we were raised middle class because our parents had access to mortgages, because our grandparents had access to mortgages and our great-grandparents. So, so, so is that where um, the idea to create an artwork that illustrates that came from? And I want you to describe your artwork that is on view now, as I said before, at um, the Myrtle Banks School Building on O.C. Haley Boulevard, 1307 O.C. Haley Boulevard, right above the public market on the third floor. You take the elevator and go up to it. So tell me about how this focus that you have on racism, first of all, this is an issue for you, and I want to learn more about why, uh, but also um, your your experience with it and your your theorizing that has come about of how important uh, and I know it's not your just your theory it is a it is a proven fact right mm-hmm. well that, documented that if you can't get a mortgage that's going to affect the rest of your life in, sure in many ways. Um, so the Great Divide is a series of fourteen four foot by ten foot panels that. Um, are of roofing pa- paper. So the panel is roofing paper, and then I wove the redlining maps um, of New Orleans back into it to create the image of the Mississippi River that um, runs through New Orleans. And um, and so the you know the roofing paper obviously uh, references housing. Uh, the redlining maps are are this data that is sitting available to all of us. Um, through the National Archives and through other um, people that are trying to get it out on the web, these images. Um, but that it's 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 documentation of what uh, the United States government and um, and other corporations have worked very hard to um, to do. <laughs> um, and and then moreover, the Mississippi River and the fact that water is interwoven into the city and pro- properly, very specifically. If you look on the redlining maps, um, the best area to be uh, in 1939 would be Uptown, um, and we know that Uptown is demographically is predominantly white and um, is higher ground what is what we learned um, during Katrina there was very uh, there was very little flooding there so I think that there is a connection to to all of that to that kind of cartography 
So just to be clear, of course, there's a, a lot of African-Americans who live uptown. Sure. Um, and the Mardi Gras uh, tribe rivalries are proof of it. Yes. And Broadmoor, which is uptown, uh, is an area that's further away from the river. And, of course, they talk about that as the bowl. And, and uh, that area got hit really hard. So, yeah, uptown, generally speaking, especially what they call the silver by the river. Yes. Um, escaped the, the worst effects of the of the storm. But so why, but why did this become? such a focus for you um so uh i i am a mother to two african-american children um and it was when um i i was doing art based on being a mom um but i was also doing a lot of research uh into race um i just believe that it is a huge responsibility to raise um, black children in the United States. And um, my job as a mother is to be the best mother I can. And as a white woman, that means to, um, you know, do my homework, so to speak. Um, and so I had the wonderful opportunity while doing this artwork on the, for lack of a better word, just of being a mother. Um, Michael Ray Charles came to my studio and, uh, he said to me, um, which was a great honor, um, and he said to me, why does your artwork look like this when your research and your life looks like this? Um, that. that. <laughs> and, um, and that was just kind of like one of the moments of truth for me where I knew that I had to start um, working specifically uh talking specifically about race within my artwork. And to do that, it means to, um, to, to speak specifically to the white race. Um, and, uh, and so I just started researching what it means to be white in America. And, um, there is a lot of, uh, information out there and a lot of policies and laws, uh, that were put into place. And for me, it was, uh, it was very liberating because if you know what the problem is, not in an abstract way, but in a very specific database way of how this social construct called race was constructed, um, then then there's a place to start to deconstruct it. And there's a place to start to try to solve, um, you know, this legacy of slavery that has um, continued on within the United States. So uh, what kinds of I, – I, I, I'm not going to use the word conclusions because we don't come to conclusions. We come to um, thoughts uh, in process about what, how we can address it. So as you think about it – and by the way, I want you to tell people who your visitor was. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because some people in the audience may not sure. know. Sure. Um, uh, I was very honored to have Michael Ray Charles, who is an African-American um, painter from the United States, but internationally known, come to my studio um, and give me a few minutes of his time. So um, as you travel this uh, journey looking for ways that you can better understand and address the issue of racism as a white person, um, and I know this folks in the audience are saying, yeah, that's a, that's a tough road, lady. That's a really tough road when they're dealing with it from the black side. Sure. So, so you know, that it, it's an interesting challenge to be talking about race as a white person. I don't think it's that easy. 
So I'm interested to hear both about your journey, um, about when you think about solutions, what kinds of things are the the, the things that you're exploring, and um, you know how do you deal with? I'm sure you've gotten some heat from the black <laughs> community, right, for for talking about race as a white person. No, I think I get a lot more heat from the white community talking about race. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So, and and that is because as white people, uh, we tend to not see ourselves as part of a race, um, and so I feel like that is my we function as the universal norm, right? Um, and so if you can, um, I feel like my role is to go ahead and and do my best to help white people understand that they not only are a part of this construct of race, um, but they are the creators of it. And, um, and then, and then we can be in allyship with others um, and helping equity in the United States. But um, for for me, as a as a white person, even with black children, I can't speak to the black experience. There are a lot of artists that can do that a lot better than me. <laughs> like that is not my job. My job is to come from my perspective and um, to come from my place within the structure of race. And so I I. Do my best um, to be to be honest and to come from a place where I'm talking um, specifically about the white race. What is the white race, and and how I, as a white person, benefit from these policies? That's part one of the question, and then part two of it is okay. As you proceed on this journey, what what? I, again, I think solutions is such a you know, solutions, conclusions. I don't believe in them anymore. But uh, what are some of the ways that you feel it is um, relevant and of, of merit and value for you to approach trying to achieve some change? Um, what is a, of merit to try to achieve some sort of change just as a human being um, and as as a mother, to do my best job as a mother is to um, is to support and protect my children. And um, the best way that I feel I can do that as in my career as an artist is to help white people understand. Um, that we have racial bias and we have race, racist policies and um, we need to start to come to terms with that and then to work to um, un- unravel that or, or deconstruct that. So that's kind of the perspective that I'm coming from as to why I do what I do. Um, but uh, so... As far as solutions, I mean, knowledge is power, and um, and I feel like if we as white people can um, challenge ourselves to learn how we became white, um, because my my great grandparents came here as Swedes and they turned into white people. And um, they assimilated very well. Um, I don't speak the language because they assimilated so well. Um, 
And so just to understand how we became white and, and then, and then through that, um, yeah, how, how we benefit from it. I think that's the best way I can express that. Um, I, I have to, uh, we have just a, more, a few more minutes and I could, I'd love to talk with you longer. And, and before the show closes, which won't be until February 25th, um, we, you will, you will be back and we will talk some more. And, and, uh, again, I want to tell everybody to please get up to the Myrtle Banks, um, uh, building to see the show. And by the way, it's open from basically nine to five because the, the gallery is right plunk in the middle of a co-working space. And so it keeps business hours. Um, and, uh, we can get you in on the weekends too. It's open during the weekends because the public market is open. But, um, if you actually really want to come in and, and talk to anybody, we can make an appointment to do that. You can call 504-218-4800. Seven, and we'll help you get in. But um, you have a website, you? Sure, yes. Okay, what um, is it? It's kimrice.net. Okay, so kimrice.net, you can see more of Kim's work. But, Kim, let's close out with you telling me just uh, – give me just a, a, a slightly broader picture of the work you do and where it's going in, <laughs> in about five minutes. <laughs> um, I um, I will continue to do work on – institutional racism and white supremacy and um, hopefully um, as an educational tool because we were not learning these in our in our history classes in school of um, how how white people benefit from the policies of the federal government and um, I'm going to continue to do weaving it is a type of meditation for me um, on on these particular thought processes. Uh, I have a show that I'll be working towards in Baltimore that is going to uh, be using lighting. So that will um, be a, a change in medium, but not in content. I, the weaving part I'm fascinated by. Just, 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 just take another couple seconds as my next guest come in and tell me weaving what and how and why <laughs> weaving. Um, uh, why weaving? This is a question that my husband asks me every day. He sees me uh, crunched up over these tiny pieces of paper. Um, for me, it's about uh, repetition. It's about a meditation on an idea, on a thought process, on how we got to where we got to um, and and how we can move forward in this age of constant um Input with social media and um, just constant information. It is good to to think things through over and over and over again uh, to truly understand. And so for me, weaving is a is a form of meditation and a form of finding calm and balance in the midst of uh, the chaos, chaos input, uh, the yeah. chaos of of life, of motherhood, of of race, um, and finding finding a balancing point. Um, but I weave just about everything these days. I I weave primarily maps, uh, these redlining maps, but um, um, I've, I With think I've material? attempted most, most everything. With what material? Uh, paper. This, mm-hmm. the divide is roofing paper and uh, just regular map paper. But I, I'm just uh, blown away by you. I think it's fascinating what you're doing. Uh, I think that you are very courageous to take on such a difficult subject from 
a difficult standpoint. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I know it's not easy to be black, but it's also not easy to be white in a country that is so divided, especially right now. I, I also am extremely conscious of all of the other um, uh, nationality conflicts and religious conflicts, so it's not just race. I mean, we, we fight each other over religion and over nationalities, and I, I think all of those fights are now so wrong for how we have to go forward and, and keep um, our planet um, uh, there for us. So thank you for what you do. Go see the show, everybody. It really is very, very special and beautiful, and it is on the third floor of the Myrtle Banks building. You go in the public market, you get on the elevator, you go up to the third floor. It's not hard, and it's open from uh, business hours from 9 to 5, um, actually beyond, really. You can go up there later, too. So um, please go see it. Uh, Kim, thank you. I look forward to your return visit. Thank you for having me. I Good enjoyed night. it very much. And this is also going to be an interesting um, a discussion with two people who have set about um, uh, a, a, a very interesting goal at a time when paper and paper publishing has become so challenging and so um, really hard to sustain, they've gone and done exactly that, created a new paper publication. And it's quite beautiful. It's it's not a big fancy thing. It's a it's a kind of modest affair, but it's called the Raffish, and we're gonna find out why it's called the Raffish. They call this issue zero because it is the first. And I'm, when I see zero, all I think about is those clothes for people who are the size zero and it just actually is not an attractive number to me. Um and it, the issue is coming out, of course it came out August August twenty seventeen. And I know it's going to be available. Um, well, you're going to tell me where it's available. So, again, we're going to start with the question of um, why you guys did this. So this is Caitlin and um, Justin, and I want to know how this came about, why you've done it. And then um, I, I want to do a little reading from uh, you. You pick which one. I've, I've read a couple of the poems. I've always loved po poetry, and it's not something that a lot of people deal with every day, but the beauty of poetry is that it, it, it doesn't just throw conventional stuff in your face. You have to kind of, as she says, calm down, read it slowly, and and kind of dig a little to get to what the poet is trying to tell you. And it's not just poems, it's it's short essays and stories and some artwork. So what is The Raffish all about, guys? Well, thanks, Jean. Um, the Raffish is about celebrating the diverse human experience and all things disparaged, cast aside, disenfranchised, and um, derived from the term riffraff, which I think we all know, we get the raffish. And, um, the, the raffish is a real word, right? It is. Raffish is a real word. And the yeah. definition of it is? There are several. The one we like to use is, um, well, we use a couple, but I, I think we use uh, mildly disreputable or uh, whimsical or s something to the effect of uh, disreputable um, yet whimsical or... Um, disparaged and yet oddly attractive 
Um, so it's about bringing. It's about a half of the people who live in the city of New right. Orleans. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's <laughs> we're why all we a little bit raffish in this town. Certainly, certainly. So it's yeah. about bringing light to that which could use a little light shed on it. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, uniting that duality, right, between how someone may appear on the outside, but what they have to give uh, to the outside world. Right. So it's getting beyond the superficial picture of raffish. Raffish. And, and getting more to, um, I think of Rhett Butler. <laughs> uh, a little before our time, but yes. I, I know, and I don't know how many people have ever even seen the movie or read the book, but yeah. um, he was a raffish character. Sure, sure. And um, who is this uh, more current? Oh, Russell oh, Brand, probably. No, but also, um, uh, oh, God. Channing Tatum? No, no, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> no. Well, there are so many, you know. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. A lot of the entertainers today are actually very raffish. Okay, so why use that word for your publication? Why do a publication? And tell me about what's in it. Certainly. Um, well, I think we use uh, – one of the benefits to using the word raffish is that m- most people aren't aware of it uh, off the bat. They hear that word and they say, well, what does that mean? Did you make that up? or they're inclined to search on the Internet for the definition, and I, it immediately gets people thinking. So My mother still calls it the ratfish. <laughs> the ratfish. <So. laughs> Some people say rayfish or, yeah. or ravish. It's very fun. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, again, why that name and, uh, and, and, and what's in your publication? I was always attracted to the word... Um, and I think from a very young age, I loved Lionel Bart's Oliver, the movie musical, 1968, I think it was. And it was just this idea of these characters of the underworld, these ostensibly lowly individuals who had this very rich and potent existence. Um, and they were quintessentially raffish. And I, I think just growing up with um, the parents that I had who were two individuals who prized character and compassion and giving back to those less fortunate, um, I've just always been interested in that which everyone else is sort of ignoring and... Um, that which needs a little more attention. So I, I don't know. The raffish always just kind of has rung true to me, and um, and I think I shared it with Caitlin early on, and we decided that that was a name that was going to do justice to our effort to chronicle these stories and share the stories of those who are underserved. So yeah, so so in your in your um, uh, letter from the editors, you say we said that the goal of the Raffish is to feature the work of under-resourced writers and artists, to celebrate that which has been disparaged, and empower those who have been disenfranchised, to share our stories in an effort to build healthier communities, to affect a more equitable world for all. Those are big goals. <laughs> they are. They are. Yes. And that's for a, you know for a, 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 a relatively modest but quite elegant and beautiful. Publication. So, how do how do you connect <laughs> what you're trying to do here to those big goals? Well, little by little, um, yeah. we've worked we've worked to reach out to uh, certain communities that we believe have stories that need to be heard in a more effective uh, way, 
in order to sort of create or, you know, push for that compassion that the world so desperately needs right now. Uh, Justin did a fantastic job in communicating with a gentleman named Brian, who two of his pieces are featured in Brian Issue Zero. Brian Ruiz? Yes. I'm just Brian Ruiz, yes. Ruiz. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, so, um, yeah, it's, for me, it's, it's a quotidian process. It's, uh, just going at it every day, um, and looking for the story that's not being told and looking for the people that are being ignored. Um, I think it's sort of a highfalutin set of goals or, or mission statement, and that's why I follow it up with we follow it up with what what we follow it up with in that uh, that letter. But I think the stories are the focus, and the simple tenet that we cling to, I think, is that by sharing our stories, we can affect a more compassionate and equitable world. It's not about um, affecting uh, there are so many people doing so many more important or larger things that will have tangible effects on a grander scale we just want to share these stories um that that's where we find our purpose that's where we find our strength so uh, tell me about the selection of work that you have in here and let's let's talk about some of the um the pieces and then um as i said i'd love for you to read one of them uh, so people have a, a real a feeling for, for Certainly. Them. So, um, yeah, tell me about how you selected these particular wor- works. Yes, well, as I was just saying, Brian Ruiz um, has been a really important uh, contact for us because through him, Justin was able to uh, receive these handwritten, beautiful uh, pieces of work from Brian and his fellow inmates. They are currently incarcerated at an Illinois prison. And I think... Brian's two pieces and the other two from uh, his other two friends are some of the most impactful, um, especially for someone like me. You know, I've never been to prison. I have no context for what that experience is like. So reading about it is very affecting. I think we've been, since we conceived the project, attempting to reach out to various under-resourced communities or various individuals with stories that would celebrate that which has been cast aside, the raffish things in life. And um, I was having a conversation with my sister, Kristen, and she mentioned a friend of hers from college who had, uh, I'll spare you the story for uh, various reasons, but had become incarcerated in an Illinois correctional facility and suggested I reach out to him. And um, I come from a family of storytellers. I also come from a family who has some experience in the prison uh, system. Um, I, I have an uncle who does work with inmates, and I've always been very interested in that. Um, and I immediately wrote a letter to Brian, um, and he wrote me back, and we've engaged in a, a correspondence Um he subsequently recruited some of his colleagues who are part of various organizations in uh, the prison system uh, doing mentorship, peer development programs. Um, and so he's really been an incredible ally to shed light on that experience. And it's it's a hell of an experience. So um, ironically, just uh, last night I spent some time with friends 
whose son was wrongfully incarcerated. Um, and I learned from him, and also recently I visited with a cab driver that I um, uh, happened to um, luck into who tried to rescue my dead car, you know, it turned out to be an extremely dead battery, um, and who wound up having to take me where I was going, which was all the way down to St. Bernard. So we got to talk a lot, and he had a son who was also inappropriately uh, incarcerated. In other words, all of these horrendously long sentences yeah. that became a part of the the last few decades as a uh, as a absolutely um, pathetic approach to the drug wars that we've been in. Yeah. Um, and uh, in both these cases, uh, these people were being punished terribly. Yeah. Um, one was in jail with a absurd bail, mm-hmm. you know, multi-million dollar bail. Yeah. Because of the nature of what he was accused of, which he is not going to be shown to be guilty of. Yeah. Um, but the other person, um, uh, with a sentence again, uh, much longer than the customary sentence for the crime involved. And, uh, God, I can't, I just can't, it's bad enough to, to have committed a crime and be in jail and come from whatever world contributed to that person winding up in that syndrome of crime, which just has so much to do with education and, and yeah. very complicated issues of home life and, and poverty and all the things that my previous guest was talking about. Absolutely. Um, but then on top of it, to be in jail unjustly. Yeah. yeah. And um, apparently this is, let's see, how do I say this? It is alleged that we have too much of that going on in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Well, just to speak to that for a moment, um, I think it's fair to say, without speaking for Caitlin, um, and I'm sure she has a lot to say on this, but I think it's fair to say we probably feel the same way about this in so much as we have serious problems with our um, prison industrial complex in this yeah. country, serious yeah. problems. Um, the, the and that's what uh, somebody was saying, that's really what it's all about, is is building your prison population so yeah. people who run prisons can make money. And now we have a president who's trying to you know, privatize so many Certainly. other things, like most recently the whole veterans' health system. Yeah. What well, is a horrifying thought? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, just it, and obviously serious problems with the justice system, et cetera. Um, I think we could do five issues about that in and of itself um, and what we find to be egregious with regard to that. Um, but I think what's powerful for me is that the pieces that we include from these individuals who are incarcerated are not dogmatic. They're not overtly didactic or alleging to... Um, they're not editorials. They're just stories. They're letters. Um, specifically in issue zero, they're just letters and um, essays, and they talk about their experience. And for me, it's sort of hard for me to see outside the bubble as the editor. But when I first read them, and I remember vividly what it was like to sit down and read them for the first time, it was powerful for me to just read the story of an individual inside, not the story of what somebody thought about their experience or how they could change it. But simply by reading the story and by sharing these stories, we can connect with something without having to feel a certain way about it or take a certain stance on it. 
And that's in no way to say that that certain stance is not called for because clearly we have a lot of work to do. But uh, the stories for me are, are the real powerful part. So um, let's select uh, one of these uh, writings. I'm looking at Yarn Ball. I don't know if you feel like that's representative. It's certainly not as um, maybe torturous as some of the other stories might be in terms of really talking about um, the the insides of a raffish person and world. Yeah, but uh, I think it might be uh, um, one that would be accessible. If you think that's the right one, or if you had something else in mind, please, whatever you want to read, let's okay. read one of the writings because they're they're all short. Which I, I love short things because we all have horrible attention spans now. So, mm-hmm. <coughs> um, well, I think Yarn Ball is a fun one. Uh, it, we thought it was very important to include a wide and eclectic array of contributions. Um, because of people's short attention spans, for one, and also because, you know, our intention is to celebrate the diversity of the human experience. So this is a nice short poem from uh, an anonymous source, actually, who sent us a very short bio. But uh, I'll go ahead and read it, if you sure. like. Sure. Okay. The name is Yarn Ball. Uh, and uh, the nom de plume of the author is Iris Palma. I thought I had something to write, but instead I'm buzzing strangely as if I'm a conduit for all the lost currents in the air, the static electricity. I yearn to untangle. My insides are a coil of jumper cables, and perhaps I'll take up yoga. And then I will write such a story that the whole world will read it and weep. And the whole world will be that one guy who rows the gondola boat in City Park, because I will have left it by the dock. And the story will weigh more than the factory which made the pen, and all the people will line up to purchase their rides, to sit in his boat and glide on the water and hear him tell the story again and again, and their tears will fill the lake. Hmm. I like that. Tell me how you selected that. Why? Well, we again, we wanted a diverse array of contributions, so we've included, I think, three poems. Yeah, we have, and, uh, um, we have poems... We have letters, we have stories, we have illustrations, um, and... And by the way, the illustration for that story is an octopus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that... Uh, an octopus is, is, is a peculiarly <laughs> uh, important symbol. When, when we were doing all those murals in, in the art house on yeah, the levee, yeah. and we did about 20 murals, the octopus just kept coming up over and over <laughs> again in the work, and I was saying, why? Well, you know, it's really funny, so... The octopus, um, a.k.a. Takosan, is actually a contribution from Serene Bacigalupi, who is a local New Orleans artist, um, go, just extraordinaire. She does all kinds of stuff. She runs a production company called Leroy's Place, really incredible stuff, LeroysPlace.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the unofficial theme of Issue Zero, and by the way, I, I realize you don't, have much zero. care for zero, but <laughs> the, the idea behind zero was um, it, it was released actually just two days ago, so it did come out in November. Originally, it was supposed to come out in October, so zero for the O, get it? You know, like issue O, October. Oh. Um, but also, it's our, you know, this is our inaugural issue, so it's sort of a test issue. We really didn't yeah, know. I was teasing about that. Of I course. Mean, I just, you know, I, I hate the whole. 
world of skinny models and 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 what that does yeah. to yeah. Um, women's self-image and the whole thing. So mm-hmm. that's why I, I have a thing about zero. So I, ignore that. Next, sure, sure. <laughs> it's just kind of my homage to Russell Westbrook as well, but we won't get into that. Um, uh, but yeah, so you know, it really. Anyway, Takosan. No, exactly. Yeah, Takusan fit into the unofficial theme um, of water, and it, you know it's sort of um, a tacit thing. But so that's when you're- that is another sort of um, uh, metaphor that uh, is is definitely uh, a part of this particular issue. Well, certainly. So when we read Yardball, um, and the, I think Yardball spoke personally to me um, to. It spoke to the torment of the artistic life and mm-hmm. and the anxiety we grapple with every day, just mm-hmm. trying to get something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Takosan, while totally separate from a yarn ball, you know, it talks about a coil of jumper cables. Well, his tentacles are like coil of jumper cables, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it's you know it's aqueous in its way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just fit. Um, but yeah, so we have. We have so much different content and, you know, our editors, or sorry, our editors, our contributors run the gamut from, um, we have an Argentine neurobiologist. We have, uh, individuals behind bars. We have a grandmother in backyard gardener writing a story about beans and the cycles of life. Um, so we really have representation from all walks of life. And, um, so long as we do include under-resourced writers, and content which chronicles the diverse human experience, um, then we're feeling good about it. But there's always more work to be done. There's always more under-resourced writers that we can represent, and and there's always more outreach speaking, that we can do. Yeah, speaking of which, um, how, how would somebody um, uh, propose a, a piece to you? So if someone in the audience is listening to this and they would like sure. to submit a work for you to consider, how do they do that? Yeah, so... Um, Rafish.org. Um, you can always go to our website and there's a submissions tab. Uh, send your submissions to submissions at the Rafish.org. Um, we accept uh, everything from essays, short stories, poems, you name it. Uh, you know, your grandmother's recipe for um, okra. Like, oh, that reminds me. I have to save two minutes at the end of my show to tell people my uh, cranberry sauce recipe. Absolutely. Oh, I want to hear forget. it. <laughs> yeah. But so we, we really encourage uh, you to send everything, um, considering it's under 500 words. And um, and we ask that it be in some way aligned with our mission to chronicle and celebrate the diverse human experience in all things Raffish. So um, that's a good stopping point, And um, I will uh, visit with you again with the next issue. Um, where can they buy it? And, um, and, and raffish.org is if you'd like to submit a work. Do you pay people for the work they do? We do not right now. We are still a fledgling publication, uh, publication and it's our, you know, inaugural issue. So we have not gotten to the point where we can pay for submissions. We're However, people do, of course, um, by publishing, by being in this, they become, uh, 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 published. Yes, so it's it, an important it, it opportunity. It promotes their work, yeah. 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 They retain all the rights. And I've got a lady from St. Bernard who's an artist and who decorated all these decoys that are floating out on the pond in Crevasse 22 in St. Bernard waiting online for me, and I want to get her into the end of the show, uh, too. Um, guys, I love it. The Raffish Issue Zero Autumn 
2017. Where can people find uh, the this? Uh, theraffish.org slash shop. You can order it online. Yeah, theraffish.org. And this Sunday from 5 to 7 at Hay Cafe on Magazine and Napoleon, we have an official release party. Um, and they will be our official distributor in New Orleans. Oh, so. I should have included that in yeah. the newsletter. Um, but uh, uh, do keep me informed on other Absolutely. opportunities when you're going to do readings or have any kind of Absolutely, events. Absolutely, yeah. Thank Thanks you, so guys. Much, I love Thank this. You, and congratulations. Thank Yay. You. Well done. All right. Now, Linda Lopez, are you there? I am here. Hello. How are Hi. you? Hi. And I know you're right in the middle of preparing your Thanksgiving dinner, as so <laughs> yes, many other yeah. people are, so I'm not going to take up too much of your time, but I do want you to share with me. Um, okay, so <laughs> this was my crazy idea uh, to um, paint decoys and put them out on the water, and uh, Jillian uh, Gibson um, has, uh, of course, as our installer, been the one to uh, actually... Um, uh, uh, get the ducks to you. My husband went and bought them. She picked them up. She got them to you. You painted them, and now they're all floating out on the water. And and Jillian had to kind of um, secure them the way uh, ducks are normally secured, which I knew nothing about, with sinkers and things like that, and get out in the boat. And I tried to get her to let me uh, film, and she wouldn't let me do that. So <laughs> um, we'll have to sort of imagine what that was like. But um, you, I, I'm so appreciative. The St. Bernard Art Guild, which Linda has been a leader of and a past president for quite a long time, um, and has an art studio in St. Bernard, and she invites people to come there. I, tell me about what the reaction was of your um, painter friends when you told them, we're going to paint decoys. Well, they were excited at first when I, I said, okay, this is what we've been asked to do when I... Uh, we've been asked to paint these decoys um, in an abstract, not in the, their natural colors, but in bright colors to be seen. And explain to them where they would be as a crevasse 22 for for Prospect 4. And they were really excited until I told them they had three days to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We and had such a short... And yeah. them and said, oh, no, we can't do this. But they did. I mean, the members, our members came together, friends... Um, even we even I even had two of um, our little young artists, a nine-year-old and eleven-year-old, who each painted one, and they just everyone came together and painted them. And I was just so excited that they got done with all the brilliant colors. And everyone said that it was just they they just had a party doing it. They said that they were just it gave everyone a reason to think more abstractly. And to use these bright colors in just a, a different creative way, they they love it. Can't wait to see the the exhibit for those who haven't yet. Well, they're so beautiful, and when I saw them all lined up on the floor inside the River House, the art center itself, um, I was just knocked out. I just they was they were more beautiful than I expected, and um, I, I they just they I couldn't help but look at them and say, oh my God, this looks like a carnival parade, you know, a Mardi Gras. It's just it was so bright and cheerful, and I could imagine easily a whole decoy. Um, carnival parade coming down the street, but here they are out floating on the on the lake, and I have no idea how the weather will treat them. So we're we're hoping that they're uh, really do well and and less for long. But you you gave them some kind of a treatment, so I know that we're we, hoping they'll yeah, last. Yeah, we did. We sprayed sealer on them, so they they should be okay for a while. And and if they fade, we'll paint them again. 
Okay. (laughs) That's great. I'm so appreciative. You're right. It was a very tight time frame because it just seemed like we couldn't get ourselves together this summer. It was such a slow, crazy summer with all that flooding and hurricanes here and there. And uh, I don't know. It it just feels like everything waited until October, and then we all kind of had to jump on everything. So I was deeply appreciative of you all willing to to take it on. And it's such a great um, sort of – I don't know what to say, counterpoint to some of the more um, serious, very contemporary artworks that are in the building, as well as to the really fancy, uh, what are called carved waterfowl. I keep getting reminded by my installer. That's the proper name for them, but just very elegant, (laughs) gorgeous champion um, ducks that are um, on display inside. And so to have a little lighter time and fun um, but again, turning out really beautiful works. Um, I mean, I just want to take them all home. <laughs> I just love I all those ducks. They're I so lined beautiful. them all up in the studio. We, um, I guess we had six or eight, nine people working at the studio on them, and the rest of them went home with the artist. And we, as they were bringing them back in, I was lining them up and taking pictures, and it was just everyone was more awesome than the, than the one before. Just, and everyone just kept saying, this was just so much fun. This was so much fun. Well, you know, honestly, um, I don't know if, if, if um, I, here, here I'm going to um, out you on, on the air, so uh, forgive me, but I'm thinking maybe we should do a couple other times uh, during Prospect. Prospect uh, just started this past weekend, and it continues through February 25th, but maybe we should have another day, a Saturday, sometime between now and then, when we invite other people to come out and, and um, do some more, because maybe by, I, again, I, we who knows how long they're going to last, but maybe we should do some refreshing or new ducks later on, because it is so much fun. But I also want to talk about fun. the uh, plain air um, painting that um, your group of artists are planning to do at Crevasse um, during a Prospect 4. So let's talk about that for a minute. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Saturday and Sundays, I think, or Fridays and Saturdays uh, for people to come out. Saturday and, and, and Sundays, kind of yeah. And, Saturdays and, and Sundays. And um, I think it would be a wonderful opportunity for some of our members and, and, and friends or whoever would like to join us to come out and do some plain air painting or drawing while we are there. It would uh, serve as a dual purpose. The place is so beautiful, and it's just so comfortable and inviting to be there. It's calming. It's really, you know, the the artist who was on the air earlier, I don't know if you heard her, but she was talking about how she does a lot of weaving in her work as a way of kind of getting away from this very intense world we live in today. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think, again, being out at that site, it's so beautiful, it's so calm, and to be making art, to uh, uh, making art in and of itself is calming. You just, you get into the art and you get away from the world. It's right. Uh, it's, right it's, it's just a wonderful thing to do. Well, um, and so it's Saturdays and Sundays from 11 to 4, and of course that site includes a sculpture garden and a, a beautiful um, Art Center Museum that um, Sydney uh, Torres and uh, Roberta Burns are so gracious to have turned into an art center for us all to to use. And we have 25 artists out there right now, not including oh, wow. all of your gals. That's now, wonderful. how many of your uh, folks worked on the ducks? And I need you to get me the names, Linda, because I, I want to sure include will. that in a separate release that I'd like to do coming up. Go ahead. Sure, how many, I will about send how many you a list uh, of, uh, of all the names. Yeah, how many artists? Everyone you, who worked on them. 
about how many artists worked on them? Um, I think we had about 15 or 16 artists. So that makes altogether 25, 35, 40 artists with work on site. And so, yeah. you know, one of the things I, I, I put in my newsletter that went out today, and, and uh, I think I added you to the um, distribution list so you should see it, um, uh, is that right now with Prospect, with their official artists and, and with all the um, satellites, and there's 120 satellites, I think we probably have easily over a 1,000 artists on view throughout um, the metro New Orleans area. And I'm just so... Uh, proud to live in a city that is able to put something like that on. And, mm. and for us, for us who live here, as well as for visitors, and I really want to encourage everybody to not only go to the sites, but also invite their friends. I see I'm running out of time. Linda, <laughs> um, so we're going to have plain air. Plain air painting, by the way, guys, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, means that you go out in nature and you draw or you do watercolors or you paint scenes as you're seeing them in nature. So it's, it's, it's really all about really enjoying nature and representing nature in your work. Is that fair enough? Sounds wonderful. Yes, that is it. Well, uh, Linda Lopez with the St. Bernard Art Guild, thank you so much for being a part of um, the name of our show is Migration, and it's really an emphasis on boats and duck and, and birds as a way of talking about how our various species move around the earth. And, of course, migration is a big, hot issue right now on another level, but um, we're treating it as, as more of something that is natural in a way. So um, thank you so, so much, and I look forward to seeing you out there on Saturdays and Sundays. And thank you, and we'll see you soon. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thank you, too. And hey, guys, everybody out in the audience, please have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And while you're at it, would you please offer some thanks for all of the creative people? And I know they're in your family because I once did a survey of homes in Treme, and out of 100 homes, more than 50 of those homes had somebody in that home who was a creative making art. And so let's thank them for what they do because they don't get a whole lot of recompense in the way of dollars for what they do. So let's, um, you know, when you're saying your thank yous, please include them in your heart. This is Jean Nathan's Crosstown Conversations. I'll see you on the other side of Thanksgiving. So enjoy. Oh, my cranberry recipe. Real quick. Cranberries with uh, cut up satsumas, roasted pecans, a little bit of balsamic vinegar. Um, that's kind of the key thing, and I, I just I think it's one of the best cranberry sauces you can possibly make. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. See you next week. Thank you.